And that was The Smiths with Hand in Glove. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. As always, crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Mark Springer from Rip Rig and Panic. Yes, that post-punk band from the early 80s. So I've got into interview that I'm going to break up into three or four easy to digest little segments. But I'm going to begin with your favourite of mine. This is... You're my kind of climate. And that is the very funky sound of Rip, Rig and Panic with the track titled You're My Kind of Climate that came out June 1982 and featured on vocal Nina Cherry. This was written by Gareth Seeger and obviously features the talented work of Mark Springer alongside about a million other musicians. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show and this week's special guest is going to be, yes, you've guessed it, Mark Springer who I spoke to quite recently. So I want to bring you that interview a little bit later. 
not too much later. But before all that, I think we should have some exciting admin. You can contact me at the show on Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And also all the shows in this series have been archived. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, and also Mixcloud. So check that out. But anyway... I think we should have another track. And then the first part of the interview with Mark. This is going to be, yes, another track by Rip, Rig and Panic. I tell you, if you like this band, fill your boots. You're in for solid gold, easy action. Sharp Band Sands from Rip, Rig and Panic. That is Bob Hope takes risks. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Mark Springer, where we've been chatting like old friends do. And then I pop the first question about his musical background and the beginnings of the band. And this was Mark's answer. Mark, take it away. Well, I mean, actually, it was all kind of a bit of a 
a bit of a hodgepodge, melting pot, whatever you want to call it, that was going on at Bristol. I mean, we were we were all living in Bristol. Um, Gareth from and Bruce Smith were two original members, and Mark Stewart was were you know pop group members originally. Do you remember the pop group? Oh yes, we're all yeah. prostitutes. I think that was the, and they were they were in the pop group. Then the pop group um, was signed to Warner Brothers, I think, in probably seventy six, seventy seven, something like that. So. Um, we were all still at school then, basically, <laughs> like uh, still practically wearing shorts when the when the pop group started. But um, we, I, we kind of met each other just generally around on the scene. You know, there was a kind of a, quite a, an exciting music. There's always been a good music energy in Bristol. You know, it's, you know, and we we kind of were just sort of tapping into that a little bit, and then we all met up, and pop group split up, and I was looking to do something. I was very much the I suppose at that time I was I was the sort of the guy that brought the whole jazz thing into it really. Yeah. So I was slightly obsessed because I, I had a I've had a a classical background. I started playing piano when I was five, or possibly even younger. And um, but I got very into jazz around sort of twelve, thirteen, and really into that whole sort of energy of jazz, avant-garde jazz, straight-ahead jazz, whatever it was. And so I wanted to set up a band that was that could kind of mix up the styles between pop, jazz, you know, even classical, whatever it was, just kind of push it all together. And the pop group was split up, and I was great friends with Gareth Sager, who was one of the key members of that band. And I just suggested, why don't we start up a band and let's call it Rip, Rig and Panic, because I was a big fan of Roland Kirk, and he was the originator of that name, because it was from one of his albums. Right. You know, the, the jazz musician, Rassan Roland Kirk, who was an incredible musician. And I was listening to all that stuff at the time, and I loved that record, and I said, why don't we call it Rip, Ring, Panic? And it has a, a specific meaning, if you want to know what the meaning is, of the name. Yes, that would um, be great. The rip, yeah, well, the Rip, I just loved it, because I thought the Rips, the rips stood for um, Rip Van Winkle, who was asleep for a hundred years, which was the idea being that it was kind of like the state of... of how most people were at that time, you know, in terms of what they were into, that everyone was just kind of asleep and not really getting all the music that was coming out. Rig stood for rigor mortis, which was a description of another facet of, of how everybody was. They were just kind of, you know, dead, basically. Yes. <laughs> it was all a part of that thing of being dead to the new sounds. And panic was the thing that happened when you were exposed to music that you didn't understand. You panicked. Yes. <laughs> so I just thought it was a great name, so I suggested it to Gareth, and we kind of just he thought it was good, and so that was how the band started. So it was me, Gareth, and Bruce, and then Bruce was the drummer, so that was the me plus the pop group, and then um, Sean, the bass player, was uh, Gareth just met him one day. He was just busking in London. We spent we used to go between Bristol and London. Yeah. And he was busking, and he just said he was great and just said would you like to join the band and so that's how we got going that was before nana cherry and then after that we met nana and we got her involved you know because yeah. because having done a lot of these interviews i noticed there's a yeah. there's quite a, a few patterns which happen and there's the the what I've, i hadn't appreciated was the five-year narrative of a band you know getting together the members and spending two years kind of making yeah. a sound and faffing about and then yeah. you know getting a getting a single or a play on the john peel show after about the second yeah. year and yeah. then that gave them that sort of the John Peel session and then yeah. the album and things were generally yeah. going quite well at that stage. But then there, there was yeah. then the tricky second album. And if anybody ever toured America, that seemed to have finished them off completely. So and then five yeah. years and then they all sort of went their own way. But but so you kind of hit the ground running quite quickly, didn't you? You didn't spend yeah, too much yeah, time. I think I think. Well, for me personally, it was great because obviously the pop group had made quite a big name for themselves. And so I was kind of coming in on. You know, in a sense, the pop group, although the pop group had disbanded, people were still interested in what Gareth was going to do and what Bruce was going to do and what Mark Stewart was going to do and so on. And so, you know, when I said, let's do... And they, they, they were hearing me, you know, there was a lot of word out on the street that there was this amazing pianist, basically, this sort of virtuoso, virtuoso pianist, which uh, they said so they started to listen to me and they started to come to some of my performances that I was doing around Bristol. I was playing in things like Bristol University and anywhere I could find, you know, sometimes pubs like the Bristol Bridge Inn, you know, which was a, had been a great favourite for, for Keith Tippett, who became a good friend of mine, who's a brilliant jazz pianist from Bristol, sort of free jazz musician, um, who started a group called Centipede. I don't know if you know them with Julie Driscoll and all that lot. Oh. Um, 
But um, that was, yeah, it was just a pub in Bristol. It was a, it was a jazz pub. And, but wherever I could play, I just played. And, and then Gareth was, became a big fan of what I was doing. And so that's how we kind of got the thing moving. So it kind of took off pretty quickly. Yeah. It did. And, yeah. and from the characters involved, it seems like there was probably, you had a lot of gravitas between you because mostly bands were, uh, you know, I mean, they have a certain gravitas, but there isn't a huge amount. They're normally quite young and, and have, yeah. a, have a little bit of musical kind of skill you know, talent or skill or, yeah. or sort of ability. But but for a band like you, your band, well, and, and uh, everyone that were, were sort of much more accomplished, uh, yeah, accomplished as kind of musicians and performers than, than a lot of sort of teen, you know, late well, teen, I early think 20s. Funny, I think you're making a good point. I think that actually my career to, to date bears that out because obviously I've, I'm sort of 20-odd CDs down the road now of kind of Springer music, which is similar to the music I was doing in a way there, in, in a sense. But I think that we were not the regular bunch in that I was very much the kind of... I was sort of key, sort of obsessed with, you know, how good I could play the piano at that time. <laughs> and also, I was very interested in, in having a band that could be both, you know, a pop group in a sense, but also have something to offer that wasn't just you know, people strumming a guitar in a sort of fairly boring fashion. I mean, I, I, I love punk rock when it started, but I didn't like the music. You know, I liked the energy. Mm. So it was like, in a way, Rip Rig was a sense of like, how can we be a bit punky, but but create something that's really good musically. Yeah. Actually, yeah, maybe that was the sort of drive behind it originally. It was this, the thing of pop uh, punk was really exciting, and we were really just on the tail end of the punk thing. It had just about died when we kicked off, and we still were sort of trying to keep, in a sense, that spirit alive. But at the same time, produce something sophisticated or more, you know, something more involved musically. Yeah, because the other thing that um, we forget a bit, well, I'm, I don't, but but there was, um, it's easy to look back at the 80s, now being nearly 30, 40 years old, um, yeah. and, but, but forget that the, it was quite a grim period during that, you know, well, actually most of it, but especially the early years, uh, the yeah. early part of that decade, there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of people doing mm. job seekers allowance and also the enterprise allowance scheme and, and those kind of gigs that the government had sort of introduced to try and get the unemployment figures down, and, and that yeah. was one reason and that I found from doing these interviews that there were so many bands because a lot of young people just didn't have any other options. There were definitely no jobs and career, you know, yeah. courses and going yeah. to university was much more difficult to get into. So mm -hmm. often there was that two years of, of sort of, yeah, claiming unemployed employment, yeah. getting, getting drunk and stoned a lot of the time, you know, yeah. and, um, and sort of but making... I, us, I don't and, think we... Again, sorry, just to, just to say, I don't think, again, we were not really in that. We weren't out of that because... The pop group had been pretty much, you know, mega successful while they were while they were going. So they were really, I mean, you know, in a sense, it wasn't like we had to sort of tread the boards or like, you know. And I was already super sort of keen on being a professional musician from when I was a kid, with you know more with with what I was doing pianistically. So I got a feeling that we wouldn't have fitted that bill. I mean, we kind of didn't fit any bill in a sense, but we were not that kind of thing because we'd already had this mega successful pop group band which then morphed into Rit Rig and Panic plus you know me who was going to be a musician probably whether I would have no matter what you know? yes. <laughs> but it was and then of course we had Nana Cherry and then we our second album we did with Don Cherry which actually got into the top top 40 charts in the UK can you imagine that <laughs> an album with Don Cherry in the top 40 indeed that is the first part of my interview with Mark Springer Still lots more to come, but I think we should break it up with another track from the band. This is taken from their second album. The album was titled I Am Cold from 1982, and this is Storm the Reality Asylum.
Indeed. Exciting and very danceable material there. That is Rip, Rig and Panic with a track titled Storm the Reality Asylum that features a million people nearly. Well, not quite, but there's Nina Cherry on vocals and also Don Cherry on trumpet and um, obviously Mark Springer on piano, Garth Sager on piano and lots of other things. I don't know why I'm starting to read this out. This is quite a mistake because I realise... Like I said, there are so many people involved in this band, it's going to take me all day. Anyway, so look, let's forget that. Let's just go back into the second part of the interview where I had been talking about the musical landscape of the 80s and the amount of diversity there had been. And this was Mark's reply. Mark, take it away. And there was a great melting pot of ideas as well. Like There was that jazz thing a lot more then. I mean, and also the record labels. Like in those days, you thought if you... I mean, I've been running my own label for 20 years now, but I mean, in, at that period in, in my youth, I was like, well, if you didn't have a record deal, you weren't really anything. You know, you couldn't achieve anything musically if you didn't have a record label behind you, was the way we all thought. Yes. And so if, you know, everyone, I mean, even we were at the beginning, we were still out to get a record deal. You know, it was a, almost the most important thing. I don't know how it was for other bands at that time, but I think it was the most important thing. You had to get a record deal to get your music out. But the record labels like Virgin, when we signed to Virgin, were actually very, you know, they had a kind of adventurous spirit. They were prepared to, to sort of sign a group like us, which now you wouldn't get signed even if you even if you tried. <laughs> you know, it was, yes. I think the labels were more up for it, you know, which is a good, what was the good part of it, you know. Yeah, there was a bit of money sloshing around and people taking the ch- uh, yeah. choice. And the other person or other thing that was so kind of important that I found is that you had this kind of the, the John Peel person, you know, the character, yeah. who was the yeah, great gatekeeper for all this alternative stuff. And luckily, and I suppose he probably didn't appreciate it and we didn't appreciate it at the time, but getting played on the John Peel show got you this kind of exposure kind of nationally and potentially um, you know, throughout Europe as well. So obviously that kind of gave people a quite a quick access to a much mm. bigger audience. And, yeah. and I found that True. a lot of people who got yeah. that play would then get kind of a phone call saying, well, would you like to come to Norwich or Leeds or Glasgow or, you know, Bristol, yeah. Brighton, you know, and, and people would just mm-hmm. get in their van and drive there and do the gig. And and so oh, that yeah. that was kind of an also an important sort of organic kind of, yeah, a musical world, really, because, because nowadays I think people have problems getting music out there and, and it's... It's yes, because there's so much that we don't have one or two people well, who are sort of doing yeah. that. The whole process is different now, isn't it? I mean, you know, anyone can do anything, release anything at any time without anybody's sort of, you know, blessing or sanction, or you don't need any money to to do it. It's yes. just a whole different process. Which I think, if that, I think, you know, if we would, if we, if we would have done it then like that, I think everyone would have been into it. Because it was kind of a drag having to get a record deal. But on the other hand, it kind of focused you. You know, you think, well, I've got, I'm going to go in the studio, I'm going to create something that's going to excite some some plonker you know, in a record company. Yes. Some Which... fat cat sitting on his butt, you know. And also, the one thing that was amazing about the band was that you did just, you know, in a relentless way. And there's a few bands. Actually, I suppose a lot of the bands from the 60s, and also I remember the, the Smiths were the same. You lived mm-hmm. it... Tw- did you live it 24-7? You know, because you did sort of almost an album album a year when you were yeah. part of that combo. So was it that the case that, you know, it was just literally write, record, tour, write, record, tour, then break yeah, out? I mean, I suppose it was. I, I mean, I think, yeah, we did a lot of live shows at that time, which was kind of amazing. And I think that was one way... I mean, if you follow the history of the... We only did three albums, I think. Just several singles, but three albums. If you follow the kind of trajectory of the albums, I think that you can really hear how the, develop, how the group developed through the live performances. I mean, certainly my playing, you know, as the sort of piano man in the group, if you like, and, and you know, was just, just was flying ahead. I mean, by the end, on the third album, which was called Attitude, I think the piano playing is pretty impressive. You know, it's really taken on a level that um, that it hadn't on the on the others. And I think that's that's because we were doing a lot of live work. But yeah, I mean, we lived it up to a point twenty four seven. You know, not not you know. I think that t- to be honest, the albums were quite patchy in some some respects. You know, they were you know. Uh, we had an ethos that we would go out on stage and improvise and just see what happened. 
And so that obviously, when you do that, you know, you're taking a risk that it's not necessarily going to be very interesting. And to some degree, we did that in the studio as well. You know, yes. we're not. We weren't one of those bands that spent like years, you know, working on writing songs. We weren't really like that. Things were very sort of spontaneous, I suppose. Really. Well, when you did your second album, the one I Am mm. Cold with the, is it uh, Picasso cover, wasn't it? Which yeah, was, which was yeah, um, quite amazing. Thing, yeah. Was that? easy to license that or did you you know yeah i think so yeah oh, i mean well. it's fine yes no i, I was just mm. impressed that you had a piccata um a lot of the songs were quite harsh weren't they i mean when you presented yeah. them to the record label did they think um you know the third song another tampon up the of humanity i just <laughs> yeah, wondered how and the titles were quite harsh that was actually quite a harsh track i suppose <laughs> Well, I don't know, but no, I think because by that time we were signed, and so they let they just kind of listen whatever Brit Ringtone wants to do, let them get on with it. You know, they weren't really trying to say, you know, write us a hit song. And if you actually listen to the albums, not there aren't many songs on them. You know, they're more there are more kind of instrumentals and they're kind of odd vocal sounds and things like that. But there aren't actually that many songs. Yes, which you know, is mostly um... mostly to to the last degree. We were a kind of an instrumental band with a few songs that we that we fitted in there. You know. Because uh, around that time, there was there was kind of rock against racism, and then a few years later, there was the Red Wedge movement. And you mm. were also sort of part of that kind of political movement, weren't you, as well? Yeah, I think we were. Yeah, we did. We, you know, like we had, you know, we were a band of, you know, black, white, whatever, different, different coloured people, and sort of Nana would go on stage when she was nine months pregnant or eight months pregnant and things like that. We were, we were trying to sort of you know, say all things were possible, in a way. The message was, you know, even if you're eight months pregnant, you can still go out there, dance, sing, do what you like. So I suppose we were trying to be free-spirited and, you know, didn't matter who you were, what you were, whether you were from New York, like Nana, or whether you were from Bristol, like Gareth, or whether you were from... I'm, I'm actually German, so whether you're from Germany, which is where I grew up, wherever we came from, we were sort of, you know, it was, we were sending out that message. And I think we were sending that out that message with the music. And I think one of the things I was going to say earlier is that um, a lot of the, uh, people, particularly jazz, people who, who were in the jazz camp, didn't really like us. I mean, they felt, who, 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 who did we think we were, that we were kind of going out there playing, you know, playing after Dollar Brand at Bracknell Jazz Festival or something like that, you know, to 3,000 people. And yet we didn't come from anywhere jazzy. We hadn't cut our what do they call it, you know, we hadn't sort of paid our dues, yes, if you like, you yes, know, that's right. we were these young kids, and yeah, there was something about what we were doing which had a kind of an energy, and actually a virtuosity to some extent, which was lacking in the sort of jazz world, yeah. you know, it was kind of funny that they, actually there were a lot of people that took against us, particularly in that sort of scene, you know, they thought, they thought we were just, you know, who the hell were these guys getting all this attention you know where did they come from yes we, well, had our, we had our you know people who didn't like us as well you know it's always going to come with the territory anyway that's the second part of my interview with mark springer talking about life in the band and the musical landscape of the 80s it was an exciting time but anyway i want to um i think we should have a little bit of a break from that interesting chat and play some more music this is going to be taken from their third album titled attitude this is the opening track and this is Keep the Sharks From Your Heart.
There you go. If that didn't get your toes tapping, then frankly, not much will. That is Rip, Rig and Panic with the track titled Keep the Sharks from Your Heart. This came out of their third album, Attitude, and that was on the Virgin Record label. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, I know I've already said it, but, um, you know, I like to say it again. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to C86 Show and all the shows have been archived. And it's well over two years worth. And I've always had a special guest. So you can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Mark, where we had been talking about the music press. And I'd been curious to know if they liked him or not. You never know. The enemy in those days, very touchy people. But anyway, Mark, did they like you? Tell us now. I mean, we did several front covers for both Melody Maker and NME and their their editor, the enemy, um, I can't remember, Neil Spencer, I think his name was. We got friend. I mean, we became friends with him and Richard Cook, the guy from the Manager Making. We got to know them all. Yeah, they really loved us. I mean, we were definitely. I think there was a year or two where we were getting more publicity than anybody else, even the big acts. You know. Yes. So when it came to your third album, which was obviously, it was amazing work rate you you guys were doing because you did some, yeah. you know an album a year attitude. Really, yeah. Was it? Definitely. Did you have the feeling that that was going to be your the final album of the band, or was it just? Um, yeah. Well, it might not be. I've got a few. I still. Got, I'm. I'm very much behind what all the re-releases that Cherry Red have done. Did you know about all those recently? Well, I've just noticed that you've been. Yeah. Because you know, I'm sort of in touch with Cherry Red quite a lot of the time because they. Yeah. They're just quite extraordinary record label, and I did an yeah, interview are, with um, is Ian the the owner of Cherry Red Records? And, yeah. And it was really interesting hearing his his story himself of, of the ups and downs yeah, of running absolutely. a record label. Yeah. So, thank God for people like Cherry Red who's still doing. Well, that's that. right, and. I mean, I'm very much sort of, in a sense, you know, keeping that rip rig thing flying, keeping it going a bit. You know, I run the, I run all the websites and the stuff that we do with rip rig because, and and I get the re-releases off the ground, and maybe even a new album, a live album from, uh, from Japan, which I've got somewhere, which I'm thinking maybe at some point. I mean, in between the other things, but I, I think it's important because for me, maybe more than every anybody else, I'd say, it reflects kind of my spirit of work rate because if you look at my on my website, you'll see a lot, of, a lot of the recent albums that I've done. But there's a hell of a lot of them. I mean, there's probably, if you conclude all the doubles, we're talking 27 CDs now, you know. And that kind of work rate, that kind of drive, I think, you know, of, of all the people in in that band, I'm the one that's, you know, churning it out still. And I don't mean that in a sort of like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> churning out the rubbish. But I'm, I, I've got that, I've got that drive, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. Because it's still, it was there then, it's there now. And so for me, it's quite important, actually, to sort of say, you know, to, to, to say the Rip Rig thing. And I've been, I brought out a CD a couple of years ago called Circa Rip Rig, where I, which was around the time of Rip Rig, where I had material that I'd recorded then. And I, I, I used to book Sean and people into studios and work on my stuff, you know. So I was, you know, I was a bit of a work rate kind of person. If you yeah. Know what I mean. Well, I suppose one thing that happens is that people become quite damaged in that life of, you know, being in a band and rock and roll. And and often it is that thing of indulging in too much stuff and also, you know, yeah. not being able to control the ego at the same time and sort of and not yeah. making good um, decisions. So did you were you yeah. able not to get too carried away and end up sort of, you know, in a state of kind of, my God, that person's completely lost it? Um, no, I, I think, well, I don't think, I can't speak for the others, but certainly as far as I was concerned, I didn't, I didn't see people rolling around sort of out of it much. I mean, we had our laughs, like any, we were only like 18 or something. Yes. <laughs> we were young, young people having a laugh and Nana was probably only 16 or something when she joined. So we were sort of, you know, out there having a laugh. But for me personally, it was always mostly about the music. Yes. Which is really, you know. That's me. I mean, it was it was into what can I do? What can I? You know, I wanted to play piano better than Keith Jarrett, Sister Dollar Brown, whoever it was out there. You know, I was like competing with all of them. You know, yeah. And absolutely. that sort of sense of, of the music was what counted for me. And I think that's where I kind of you know, in, in actually it was very much my uh, thing in the end. I couldn't really work with the guys anymore because I felt that what I was doing musically was moving too far. You know too far off from what they could do so in the end i just said to gareth look i don't think this is you know 
quite right for me any longer. So it, even that decision was made out of music, you know. Yeah. So did you that have a moment? When, so did you have a moment when you could sit down and all say, to quote Jim Morrison, "This is the end." No, not really. I mean, it was. I mean, I suppose me and Gareth had kind of like really, in a way, sort of got the whole thing moving originally. And it was basically when I felt that I was no longer, you know, that in a sense I'd moved beyond what we could do as a group, away from what we could do as a group. And I was, you know, playing in a way that I felt, you know, frustrated now being within the band. So I kind of just sat down, sat Gareth down and I had to chat with him. And then I left the band and then they re- well, they, they stayed together and became another group called Float Up CP, I think. Yes. That's true, so, actually. Yeah, it was really my decision to kind of leave, 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 leave the rip race, you know. Yeah, but it's often, you know, it's kind of moving on can be a bit tricky. But then, you know, some... Yeah, you no, know, it's it, it, it is, And obviously, you know, because there's been a lot of attention about it and I suppose deep people dealing with that world of fame and then sort of, you know, the fallout of it, you know, and there was the Bross documentary mm-hmm. or film that came out recently and, and seeing how they coped with it. And obviously you, you saw Nana and her sort of career with the great sort of yeah. that that sort of sudden explosion into mm. you know global you know a global brand and its success which yeah, kind absolutely. of kind of does change people because I did an interview with the poet Murray Lachlan Young recently and um yeah. he was the guy who got a million pound and just mm-hmm. he just said it just does yeah. things to your head that you just don't appreciate and eventually it all comes terribly you know it goes terribly wrong and you end up living in the woods for three years trying yeah. to get your life back together. So well, it is quite hard when you've been in a band. I mean, I found it quite hard because we we were playing a lot and travelling a lot and going all over the place. And I was developing creatively in the band really a lot. So making the decision to then sort of, in a sense, go on my own was pretty tough. I mean, you know, I've, I I think that you know when you're in a band and you, you you can do what you like and you're getting gigs and playing a lot, it, it became much harder then to, to to you know to do what I wanted. So it was a struggle. And you do feel it. You feel that sort of, you know, shit. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, in, it's interesting because I've done an interview with, um, well, two quite interesting characters, uh, Lawrence yeah. from Felt and also Momus as well, who, yeah. who were just people who just done their th- own thing and were almost releasing an album a year. And in the case of Momus, I think he's released something ridiculous amount, like 30 albums. Yeah. So he obviously yeah. is, is, you know, there's a few people that one would say, God, they were a real artist because yeah. there was no plan yeah. B in their kind of life. They weren't going to suddenly go, I'm just going to no, put, exactly. yeah. put it away, whatever, you know, music, yeah. musical instrument or, you know, the songwriting and just think about it. And well, then, no, well, that's a good point. Yeah, not some people are just that's what they do and that's what they all they all they want to do you know? yes and i realized yeah. that with people you know like david bowie you know who was kind of i suppose you i would say was my first love because that was my first single and then i sort of stuck with him throughout you know from that sort of early mid 70s yeah. right through to black star and, and again mm. you know it wasn't an easy thing because obviously some of it his work wasn't that great but it was still no, it was still fascinating to see that journey and yeah and because and, you kind of locked onto him as a, as a creative being in the end and you just think well he's going to go down some roads you're not necessarily going to be too keen on <laughs> yes. but it, there's something there that that is captivating isn't there you know and that i think is the key is what you know not everyone's got that no not everyone's got that sort of element you know this is too this is so true there you go that is the third part of my interview with mark springer from rip Rig and Panic. I think we'll play another track as we nearly near the end of the show. This is going to be Sunken Love.
There you go. Still sounding funky. That is Sunken Love from Rip, Rig and Panic. And that's the album from the album Attitude. This is um, David Easton, the C86 show. I know, I do feel a little bit desperate saying that every time there's a link. But, you know, at my age, you often find yourself repeating words, phrases, just the same thing endlessly. Anyway, this is going to be the next part and almost the final part of the interview with Mark, where I'd been talking about the interest in business of the music industry and also the admin and the fact that he's also started his own record label. And for those who are interested, um, he does have a very good website. You can just um, go and find it, markspringer.net. And there's no dot dash between Mark Springer. So check it out. It's all there, his musical journey. Anyway, Mark, tell us about running your own yeah, record label. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, that, you know, that was the best thing I ever did, really. Because then I just had autonomy and I had managers and stuff and they'd try and make you do things. And I just, you know, I just said, well, I don't really want to do that. You know, <laughs> it's a bit like somebody wants you to write something that's bad, when actually, well, you go, actually, I can write something that's good, you know. Yes. I'm going to do that, you know, just because you want me to do something that's not so good, but maybe makes more money, you know. Yes. So um, getting that sense of independence, setting up my own label, it's not necessarily, funny enough, this year I'm going to be bringing out something, I may have mentioned on an email to you, but I'm bringing out something on a French label, which is exciting. Um, so, yeah, with, you know, this label who's, got people like Philip Glass and Steve Rice, so that's kind of a nice company to be in, you know, and maybe that's 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 quite a buzz to do something like that. Well, absolutely. It's a huge yeah, buzz. Working on other labels is, is also kind of exciting. You know, there's a, there's a limit to what you can do with your own label sometimes, you know, in terms of getting it out there, you know. And also you must have to deal with different parts of your brain that deal have to deal with very different things. Because obviously making music is one thing and you get into that headspace yeah. and that's sort mm. of focus and then you have mm -hmm. to deal with you know the legality of things and accountancy and finances and that's another bit of work yeah. that, that that is quite hard to balance that so how do you manage to to sort of well, juggle I think both? you've got to make those decisions you've got to say well look if i'm going to do this i've got to understand how it how it works how, you know how i'm going to make it work i mean i get a lot of help i've got a really good distributor and then they they collect all the stuff all the you know, mechanicals that go all around the world and all the downloads and all that kind of business. So I work with good people, but, you know, I made the decision that, you know, if you're going to set something up yourself, you've got to set it up and you've got to do the business side of it. Yeah, you know, It's kind of, it dawned on me one day, you know, if you're going to wait for record labels, you're going to have to wait forever because they either want you to do something you don't want to do or you, you they're not interested, you know. So, yes. whatever the reasons. You know, I, I just, for, if you're sort of like me where you, you know, you kind of, not churning out music, but you've got a constant flow of ideas, you know, and things you want to do. There is only one way to go, really, and that's doing it in your own space, in your own time, you know. Yes. And, um, there, and you've got, you know. And I was going to say, you know, when you sort of look at, you know, the, the journey that you've been on, are there any mm. bits that, that you think, God, that, I got that completely right, and there's other bits where you think, oh, that was, that was not the sort of path I should have gone down? You mean business... No, I suppose, well, more, uh, uh, no, creatively, really, you know, just that kind of times when you've sort of looked back, you know, I mean, everybody like yeah. David Bowie, you know, he had his tin machine period, which, you know, yeah. was, you know he... Well, he, I think that's why I find that, you know, doing bits and pieces on the Rip Rig stuff for me is quite good because for me, it's a, I see the line. You know, if, if you listen to it ring panic, and this is what I'm doing now, it's this guy playing the piano. Now I'm, I'm adding string quartets or piano sex the album that's coming out this year incidentally is going to be solo piano it's going to be on vinyl as well and it's solo piano the a side and the b side is a piano sextet which is piano string quartet and double bass which i recorded i play a lot in abroad these days in italy and france and so on i recorded it in a concert in a theater in italy a couple of years ago and whether it's something like that which you know to some people would say is very classical but when you actually what's interesting i think about my contemporary work is when you listen to it those threads that will take you all the way back to ring and panic are in it you know there's there's always some pretty groovy piano playing going on and then there's you know compositional elements and i'll go out with my quartet and my double bassist who's, who actually happens to be a great jazz musician but as well as a classical player but my quartet very much read that read from the notes 
But there'll always be something I might do in a concert that throws them, you know. Yes. I'll get a few worried looks when I do things because that kind of, that sort of thing of how it all, where it all came from is still there, you know. And I think actually I feel pretty, pretty sort of happy about, about my work. I mean, I can listen to some, some of the CDs I've done and think, hmm, not too sure about that in places, <laughs> yes. you know. But basically it's all, it's all out of the kind of spirit of creativity and, you know, much as someone like Matisse or Picasso or, you know, any of these artists who are doing stuff. I mean, you know, look at, if you look at Picasso's work, there's some really crappy rubbish there, isn't there, you know. Yeah. And there's some amazing stuff. But, and there's some classical painting and there's some free abstraction. And then, you know, I mean, I almost see myself a bit like that in that I can kind of take what I'm doing into different areas. I can take it into going out on stage and spontaneously compose, which is what I call it rather than improvising because I don't really like improvising. Um, or I can structure something like an opera, which I premiered in Italy, which is certainly a premier, premier in London at the end of the year. Um, so it can be whatever it is, and it's kind of just out of that flow of creative energy, you know, and I, I don't see anything that's negative about any of what I've done, really. No. And also, yeah. you know, I, I suppose I also think that you can't, you know, I mean, whatever one, however one defines success or failure, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just a yeah. kind of a journey, and I can, I can see that with people like, you know, David Bowie. I always sort of go back to, but you know, yeah, is, I think it's very interesting that David Barry says about his work that he's very, he just it, all the previous work that he did was very important to him. Yes, I mean, I remember he, he said it not long before he died, but every time he makes a new album, he kind of is aware of all the albums that he's done and what he's done in each of them. And I think I'm exactly the same in, in that I'm kind of like, you know, I go all the way back to Ring Panic, all the way from the stuff I did when I was signed as a solo artist to Virgin Menu. I've got Menu 1 and Menu 2 re-released with new stuff on, which was a solo album I did for Virgin. So it, I go back all that way, and I kind of like find bits of in each thing, and I think, hmm. And each, each one tells me something about what I could be doing now sometimes, that, you know, that either I'm not doing, or something I could be doing or adding, you know? Yes. I remember David Barry saying that, and I thought, good for you, David. That's the sign of somebody who's actually, you know, everything they do is relevant. Yes. And it to has... them. I don't mean relevant to anybody else. <laughs> relevant no. to them. Well, I think that's, that's the main thing, because you know, another musician that I loved, which is completely different, was Lemmy from Motorhead, because he just wanted to be yeah. in music. And it was just like, well, when we put an album out, we'll be happy. We don't really care that much about what the fans think though they would like to sell more records obviously but at the same yeah. time it, he you know it was like yeah we're satisfied with that we're happy we'll let yeah. that go into the world and yeah. and we're gonna be pleased with it so i think that's the only thing as an artist one can do is to have I that think kind so. of control and i think it does show i mean you know okay you're not gonna maybe if you're doing something like i'm bringing out a solo piano album or something like that you don't know how many people might be a few hundred people that buy it in the end you know certainly whatever it is but you're doing it and if you know, if someone out there listens to it, they're going to go, well, this is like, even if you th even if you go, I don't like this, not my style, not my thing, you still kind of go, well, you know, it's still, there's something there, you know, there's something going on. Yes. There's somebody sort of trying something, you know. I know. <laughs> even, if, even if you don't like it, you know. <laughs> I suppose it's about having uh, integrity, isn't it, really, and just, me, you know, knowing that, you weren't... I think it's beyond integrity because there are lots of people who have integrity and they create a load of old crap, you know, and it's like they've got integrity, but integrity for what? <laughs> I think there's an element where there's something beyond that, which is this kind of inner propulsion, you know? It's yes. sort of beyond integrity. It's sort of, it, it, it takes to, to another level, really. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. And do you, mm. I mean, as, as we get older and we trundle through the years and decades, did you, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, we all go our separate ways, but do you occasionally sort of bump in or meet up and interact yeah. with people from our yeah, past? I just what, I do, yeah. And I wondered yeah. what that was like with, with the mem members of the band that um, from those, you know, over... Well, well I, I think it's pretty much cool. I mean, I, I, in, in a way, I speak to an animal and the others. I sort of, you know, we, we email each other and things like that. And I'm not too mad on, you know, Gareth is doing his pop group stuff, which is okay. But it, it, to me, it's a little bit too much sort of, he's stuck in that, in the past bit with that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like, yeah. But I mean, we're all still, I mean, Sean obviously died several years ago, the bass player, so we can't speak to him. We were great friends. But, you know, even so, the, the new Rip Rig album I just brought out, the Circa Rip Rig thing, has Sean on it. So it's really nice. And he's playing cello on three tracks, which is great. So... 
which is something he hardly ever did in the band. I think there's only one track on the, on a Rit Rig album with him on cello, so I thought it was fabulous to have a track with three three pieces of him on it, you know. Yes, well, that's interesting, especially because, I mean, he did die... He did die a long time ago, didn't he, as well? Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Which must yeah, be but kind that's of... what's nice about bringing that stuff out because we did it in the studio and I really liked it and it has full of energy, you know, brimming. And him on cello and it shows a side of him, you know, it shows how versatile he was, you know. Yes, absolutely. As a player. And also you did, you know, just almost lastly, you did appear in one of our favourite sitcoms of the 80s, The Young Ones. Can you, <laughs> can you remember much about that? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think it was the first episode, I think, or the second episode, something like that. Right, you're yeah. my kind of climate as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I remember it well. No, it got on, got on nicely with the people. I thought it was great. That show it was fun. It was, yes, it was. A, it, it, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what it would be like now, but at the time we were obsessed with it, and and there was yeah. also on Channel Four you had the Tube as well, which was another one of those yeah. programs that we all all enjoyed. So, what would you say? Because you've got a huge amount of experience. To to I don't know. I often say your 18 year old self, and then sometimes it's like, well, mm. does that mean mm. 18 then, or does it mean 18? But just you know, what key things have you you know kind of picked up along the way that you think oh yes i didn't know that when i was 18 and that would have you know that i've learned it now and that that would be something that i definitely sort of tell my or well, I, you know remind yourself mm. if if not an, a young person who's starting out in that the, that creative industry i mean i think now it's completely different because you don't need a record label you don't need a lot of the things that you needed when i was 18 so I think it's kind of, in many ways, it's better. In some ways, it's less good because there's more sort of stuff that's, that's not good out there, you know, that you have to kind of wade through. But no, I've got absolutely nothing to say to anyone other than that, 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 that I do, they do need to... Um, the harder you work from the earlier age, the better, is <laughs> what I'd say. Yes. Like, if you want to learn an instrument, the best thing is to start early and work hard, and that's not something that kids like doing much. I know. And I think if you can overcome this dislike of, of working at something, the kind of rewards that you get from it are far outweigh the kind of hassle of having to practice. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd say something like, just practice. If you're playing, learning an instrument, just practice it really well and keep going, you know. Wise advice there from Mark Springer. And that, dear listener, is sadly the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening and obviously a huge thank you for Mark for giving me the time for that interview. And um, yes, don't forget, next week I will have another special guest because I have quite a lot in, well, in the backlog really. But anyway, thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall, the C86 show. I'll leave you with another track by the band. This is Do the Type Rope. Have a great week. <laughs>